I want to talk this episode about something very close to my own heart, something that I've been dealing with for many, many years. It's called imposter syndrome, and it's a sense that somehow we are frauds in what we do, that none of our awards are actually merited, and that someday we'll be found out. Stick with me for this episode while I discuss this idea of imposter syndrome and offer some possible solutions. Imposter syndrome. Now, in order to get at that, I wanted to think just a little bit about a play by William Shakespeare, Henry V, where he recounts the story of the English king defeating the French at the Battle of Agincourt. And in this play, there's always these references to what's real and what isn't real, and whether people are wearing masks, and whether people are uh, betraying others, and whether people are manipulating others. There's a constant thought about whether Henry, the king, is really honest with himself and with others, or whether he's simply manipulating others. And there's one scene where that mask that we see during most of the play kind of comes off, and we get a sense of what Henry's actually grappling with in the play. And this is in Henry V, it's Act 4, it's Scene 1, and it's at the camp of the English just before the battle of Agincourt, which is the big battle where he defeats the, um, the, the, the French army. They're outnumbered 10 to 1 or something like that. It's huge, huge odds are stacked against the British, against the English forces. And they're fighting for their lives because they're trying to get out uh, from France now that they've gotten in and their army has diminished and they're all starving to death. And they're, they're trying to get back to Calais in order to sail back to England. And Henry has gone about the camp and he's found out what the nature of his men's morale is. Now he is alone, and he has a moment where he has a soliloquy, that is a a speech that he gives to the audience. And normally his soliloquies, Shakespeare's soliloquies, they they reveal the inmost thoughts and, and, and feelings of the character giving the soliloquy. So here we are, and Henry gives this following soliloquy. I'll read just a section of it. And he says, um, Upon the king... Let us our lives, our souls, our debts, our careful wives, our children, and our sins lay on the king. We must bear all. O hard-conditioned, twin-born with greatness, subject to the breath of every fool whose sense no more can feel but his own ringing, what infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy? And what have kings that privates have not too, save ceremony, save general ceremony. And what art thou, thou idle ceremony? What kind of God art thou, that sufferest more of mortal griefs than do thy worshippers? What are thy rents? What are thy comings in? 
O ceremony, show me but thy worth. What is thy soul of adoration? Art thou aught else but place, degree, and form, creating awe and fear in other men, wherein thou art less happy being feared than they in fearing? What drinks thou oft instead of homage sweet but poisoned flattery? O be sick, great greatness, and bid thy ceremony give thee cure. Thinkst thou the fiery fever will go out with titles blown from adulation? Will it give place to flexure and low bending? Canst thou, when thou commandst the beggar's knee, command the health of it? No, thou proud dream, that playest so subtly with the king's repose. I am a king that find thee, and I know tis not the balm, the scepter, and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the intertissued robe of gold and pearl, the farst title running for the king, the throne he sits on, nor the tide of pomp that beats upon the high shore of this world. No, not all these thrice gorgeous ceremony, not all these laid in bed majestical can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave who with a body filled and vacant mind gets him to rest crammed with distressful bread. Never sees horrid night, the child of hell, but like a lackey from the rise to set, sweats in the eye of Phoebus, and all night sleeps in Elysium. It's a wonderful little soliloquy he has there, and uh, there are many things that one can think about when reading that, when reflecting upon that. But the one that I was struck with most recently is this idea of imposter syndrome. Uh, and, and Harry, Henry the King, you can say a great many things about him, but that speech to some degree reveals this sense of being a fraud, this sense of being an imposter, this sense that somehow you're going to be found out. And uh, this is a syndrome which really wasn't diagnosed until recently. And just to make clear, it's not a mental disease, it's a syndrome, which means it's a, it's a condition that people go through, or an experience that people go through. And if you just want to read up on, on the syndrome, it's, you know, I just looked it up on Wikipedia, so I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not um, a, a scholar as far as this goes, so this is, in, is not in-depth research. But at Wikipedia it says that imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern in which one doubts one's accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Despite external evidence of their competence, those experiencing this phenomenon remain convinced that they are frauds and do not deserve all they have achieved. Individuals with impostorism incorrectly attribute their success to luck or interpret it as a result of deceiving others into thinking they are more intelligent than they perceive themselves to be. Now apparently this wasn't diagnosed until about 1978 when uh, Dr. Pauline R. Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes wrote this study, this uh, um, study of different women in the workplace, and they titled their article The Imposter Phenomenon in High-Achieving Women Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. And they defined this syndrome as an individual experience of self-perceived intellectual phoniness. Intellectual phoniness, I like that. They concluded that most of this was probably because of 
women's uh, background, they're growing up, um, a male-dominated society, gender stereotypes, family dynamics, things like that. And they, um, they went on to write that uh, women who experienced imposter phenomenon showcased symptoms related to depression, generalized anxiety, and low self-confidence. Then further research that was done on this for, uh, further on down the road um, proved that it wasn't limited only to women. Uh, there was a study that was done in 1985, it looks like, and uh, the first scale designated to measure this phenomenon was in 1985. And uh, there was a paper in 1985 which showed that it was, had six dimensions to it. The imposter cycle, the need to be special or the best, characteristics of a superman or superwoman, fear of failure, denial of ability and discounting praise, and then feeling fear and guilt about their success. So the idea is that a person with this syndrome is, um, doesn't feel as though what they have done is, is, really, is really real. It's not, they, they themselves are not a success. Somehow they are an imposter in all that they're doing and that they're going to get found out. It turns out that the, the studies suggest that more than 70% of people experience this, apparently, at some point in their career anyway. And um, it's not li- limited only to, uh, to women. It, apparently, men also suffer from it uh, as well. And this, in 2006, it, was, it looks like it, there was a study that, that looked at gender differences when exploring this relationship between the feeling of, of being an imposter and the achievement of goals. And what the researchers concluded was that women who participated in the study experienced imposter phenomenon more so than the men who participated. But other research has shown that women commonly face imposter phenomenon in regard to performance. Um, the perception of ability and power is evidenced in outperforming others. For men, imposter phenomenon is often driven by the fear of being unsuccessful or not good enough. There is apparently a significant amount of literature on imposter phenomenon and gender differences stating that it is spread equally among men and among and women. So both men and women seem to have uh, the same kind of sense that we're imposters, that we're going to get found out. So... In some ways, it's like what Henry says in that soliloquy, that opening soliloquy. It's as though you are in the position of a king, and the only thing that keeps you from being like everybody else is this ceremony that inspires fear and awe in others. The ceremony of success, the ceremony of awards. But at, at heart, at essence, you're basically an imposter. That's the feeling anyway. You're a fraud. And everything you do and everything you say and everything you create is fraudulent. Um, it's, a, it's an experience which I think afflicts a great many people and they don't even recognize that it's happening. They, they, they somehow f- think that they're, what they've gained is not due to them. Almost like a, a, false, a false humility, I, I guess you could say. Um, but, but when one is afflicted by this, it can move to great levels of depression and feeling like you have let people down or you're worried you're going to let people down.
But I, I do take issue with this idea that it was somehow a condition that's created by our, um, our, our upbringing or our background. I actually think that this is something which afflicts people by uh, the very nature of who they are. In other words, the, um, the sense doesn't come from the upbringing. The upbringing can exacerbate it. But the, the sense, actually, I think, comes from something which occurs in some people by, by their very nature. You have either people that have a sense of the inherent f- fraud of, the, of living, and you have people that don't have that sense, that they don't see any problem with the way the world is constructed. Now, what I mean by the, the fraud of living... Um, it's almost as though there's a sense in some people that the world itself is illusion, is a construct. Not just our own accomplishments, but, but all, of our, uh, all of our creations, all of our artifice, all of our um, perception is itself illusion or fraud or lie. And uh, that sense that's, that we're living in something which is not really real certainly can be an inkling of another worldliness. It may be that the whole sense stems from the, uh, the gap between the ideal and the reality. You know, you have this ideal vision of how a thing should be. This is how it's going to happen when, when, when she finally says yes, or this is how it's going to happen when I finally gain that position or whatever it is. And um, then there's a reality that somehow it's not as great as all that. More so than that, it seems like this, um, for us as humans, we don't, what we perceive is not the actual thing. Our perception is always somewhat skewed because we, by nature, make an image in our mind of the thing in order to try and deal with it. You know, whether it's a tree or a car or a cloud, um, we, we don't have the tree or the car or the cloud in our head. We make an image of it in our head and we deal with that image then if that image is closely aligned with the thing out there then it's it's true and things can be more true or less true depending on how accurate our perception of them is but for some people there's an inherent sense that this gap is tremendous that there's even a gap that exists no matter how true the image is to the reality itself. Hard to explain this, I think, except for that if you refer to things throughout history, um, I think that some big examples were talking about just this very thing. Now, admittedly, there are some characters in literature that have talked about this, I think, and given us great examples. One of them, for instance, is Shakespeare's character, Henry V. His character is certainly talking about the weight of kingship or the weight of responsibility or the weight of being a leader. But he is, to some degree, talking about the weight that any adult bears when they take on the mantle of leadership as a, as a father or a mother or a teacher or a politician or a boss or anything like that. You take on a certain mantle of um, authority and you always have this sense that you aren't 
quite worthy of that authority. In some people, it's much worse. I think you see the same thing in other authors. I mean, for instance, um, Albert Camus in his book, The Stranger, or uh, Franz Kafka in his book, The Trial. And, and, and certainly those authors are talking about political problems as well, but they do give a language for this idea of, of um, fraudulent nature or um, feeling like you're, you're, you're fake. One of the greatest examples, it seems to me, is, is way back with Plato when he gives the example in The Republic of the Ring of Gygus. Um, in that story, Gygus, uh, the story is told by Glaucon, one of the interlocutors of, of Socrates. And Glaucon is trying to show that everybody given power would do evil. But um, really the story tells more than what Glaucon intends it to. In that story, Gygus, who is a shepherd, goes down into a cave and he finds this ring on a giant's body. And he takes the ring and it makes him invisible, he finds out. And with that invisibility... He, uh, he goes and he uh, seduces the queen and he kills the king and he takes over the, the rule of the nation. He replaces the king uh, with himself. He's an imposter king. And I think that that image of the ring is supposed to be taken as um, this, this idea of fraudulence, of imposter syndrome. I mean, if you think, for instance, of that image in Plato, what does that ring symbolize? It, it, it is beautiful and it's um, circular, infinite, and it uh, it causes you to be invisible so people can't see you, but also gives you tremendous power and control over other people. So in some ways it's like the ability to see behind the curtain, to see behind the, the stage of human existence so that you see from backstage the illusion of it all and the audience who's mesmerized by the illusion doesn't see the goings-on backstage. When you wear that ring of Gyges, you're perceiving behind the curtain. I think that's what Plato is getting across with that image. The ring of Gygus represents the vision of seeing everything as artifice, as construct. Tolkien also brings up this same image in The Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit. There the ring of Sauron, the ring of power, which makes you invisible, allows you a certain heightened perception and a certain ability to see things and to control others that, that most people don't have. But we have to consider that Bilbo, who finds it, is also initially a perceptive character. He's different from the others. He has a Tookish side, for instance, that, that enjoys adventure. And that is then heightened by the ring. Plato seems to suggest that that ring image can be used for good and for evil. Tolkien is explicit in saying that the ring of power can only be used for evil. But I think both authors are reflecting on the same thing. Their image of the ring represents this vision of the gap between our perception and the reality that the perception represents. 
how the mind creates images for us to be able to deal with the world around us. And if, for instance, those images are closely correspondent to a reality, then there's no issue, there's no problem. But if, for instance, those images are far removed from the reality, or if they perceive much more of the reality than other people can possibly perceive, or if they perceive a reality that might not actually exist, (laughs) a reality that the beholder doubts, that's where I think this sense of fraud comes up, this sense of being a fake comes up because you feel like you yourself are also a fake and that everything around you is a fake and that all the stories you've ever heard are just fakes and that the the reality that we want so much to exist is itself a fake that's how the perception is now I have to confess I've suffered from this for years with all the success I've had in various roles throughout my life, I still have this tremendous sense that people are going to find me out for the real fraud that I am. It's gotten better over the years, but it's never gone away, and I don't think it ever will go away. I know my daddy used to suffer from it even up to the day he died. He had a vision right before he died of seeing faces everywhere looking at him, which I think was a manifestation of this. It's something where I don't make friends easily, where I don't join clubs and groups, where I have a hard time with religion, where I have a hard time with any institution. I'm antisocial, I guess you could say. But it's because, in some ways, I feel like that outsider who is looking in on everything. I feel like that person who perceives certain things and doesn't know whether they're real or not. But when he tries to tell others about what he's perceived, they get shocked or scared or amazed. And so I stop telling people. And half the things that I think about or perceive, I never tell anyone. So that carrying around those visions and ideas and perceptions ends up making me feel like a thief in the night. Ends up making me feel like I'm carrying something around, which if it were ever found out that I thought such things, I would be run out of town on a pole. I would be fed hemlock. I'd be laughed at. That's what imposter syndrome feels like. It's not just about job. It's not just about success. It's more about this perception of the world itself. And in my opinion, it's been heightened by our modern world in two major ways. The first major way is that we now have so many opportunities for people to take their lives, which is a good thing. You know, a person can make the decision to become an electrician or a plumber or a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or a politician, they can choose all sorts of numbers of jobs. They're not limited by circumstance or by locale. And that's a very fine thing because we can certainly define for ourselves where we're headed. 
Nor are we limited to have to believe what everybody else believes. Nor, for that matter, it seems, are we limited to have to agree to the gender roles or to have to agree to the societal roles that previously were taken for granted. Now, whether one thinks those are right or wrong, they seem to say that we have a great many more freedoms than we had before. And I think that that is a very fine thing, the ability for a person to to be free to choose their path in life. But there's a tremendous burden that comes with it. And here's where I think the sticking point comes, is because the burden of freedom is immense. When you are free to choose what life you want to lead, you are also free to screw up your life royally, to make terribly bad decisions, to wreck yourself in in innumerable ways. And if, for instance, you're having to choose all the time what path to take, there's a lack of solidity about the role that you're supposed to fall into. In previous days, when you were the son of a miller, for instance, your job in the future would be as a miller. And you would fall into that role. Roles were very uh, set, and uh, there was no doubt about what you were supposed to be doing. And I think that that increased freedom in our world, especially in our country, in America... I think has great benefit, but has this tremendous backside to it, this dark side to it, which is that it, it also allows for great doubt and great worry, anxiety, and for a tremendous sense of fraud, an increased level of the sense of fraud. The second way I think that this has been increased, especially in the last 30 years, is by the whole movement away from the physical world. As we move further and further into an electronic world, a simulacrum, uh, a a, a simulated world, where people's jobs are no longer with physical things, but with with ideas or with images or with uh, um, programming or with electronics, as we move into a world where communication is more through the internet or through electronic means, We move away from the direct physical contact with the world. I'm not saying that those things are are evil. What I'm saying is that as we move away from the physical world, there's more chance of this sense of being a fraud. Direct contact with the world doesn't doesn't feed that, that idea that all is illusion. If, for instance, you go to plow a field... At the end of it, you look back, and what do you see? You see a plowed field. When you go to paint a room, by the end of it, you look at the room, and there's a painted room. The the, the physicality of it, the, the, the getting your hands in the dirt, so to speak, is a safeguard against this sense of being a fraud. So in my experience, one of the major ways to be able to overcome this sense of fraudulence is to do things that are physical. Keep to a routine. Exercise. Talk to human beings, not to electronics, and not to humans through electronics. Delve into concrete things that you can do. I I, I don't mean pouring concrete. I mean actual physical things. Gardening. um, uh, uh, Working with uh, electronics. Electricity, or working with plumbing, or working, for instance, with uh, carpentry, 
um, contacting human beings directly, uh, that sort of direct contact with the world gives us a safeguard from this sense that everything's illusion. It doesn't make it go away completely, but gives you a chance to be able to manage it better. I think the other thing that we can do to be able to overcome this is to find out what others have done before us, to read other works so that we get a language for it. You know, if you're reading, for instance, Albert Camus, if you're reading Franz Kafka, if you read Dostoevsky, if you read J.R.R. Tolkien, if you read Plato, if you read Shakespeare, all these fellows are giving you a, a language to be able to handle this issue. It can be used, I think, for great good. I think Tolkien may be mistaken in this. What Tolkien's vision was, was that this ring, this vision, this ability to see, cannot be used for good. Sauron's ring creates nothing good. And perhaps what Tolkien is suggesting is that if we dwell on it, if we let that illusion sense, that fraud sense, take us over, we don't create anything. We simply become incapable of dealing with the world. We simply become miserable. We end up being a person who can't associate with others, can't deal with the world around us, who gets consumed by, um, by that illusion sense. And so it can't be, the, the, the essential vision can't produce anything good. What good does it do to think that there's nothing beyond this world? It doesn't really do anything for us. If, on the other hand, Plato is right, though, this vision can produce good. And maybe what Plato means, it might not be contradictory to Tolkien. What Plato mean, means, perhaps, is that our sense of fraudulence is a product of our trying to use this sense for, uh, for our own gain. That the only way around this sense of being an imposter, being a fraud, is actually to use this insight for the betterment of others. To use the nuance for the betterment of others. To use the vision in order to encourage other people and bring them to greatness. To create for them a city, even in speech, so that they can inhabit a city, a communal place. I don't think the two are necessarily contradictory, but I think both are excellent warnings about this inherent sense. If we dwell in it, it can't be used for any good. If we have the vision, though, it is possible we can train ourselves to be able to use those images and that sense of images and that sense of ideas to help other people. And in doing so, we do great good, tremendous good. I know that for years of my wrestling with this, I've come to understand the idea of a magician and wizard on a much greater level because I think that those terms play into this too. We have the choice with the knowledge that we have, which is in Latin, magus. Now, a magician is one who knows. If we have this insight into the uh, inherent problem of images versus reality, if we see behind the curtain, if we wear this ring then we have this opportunity to use it for good or for evil. If we use it for good, we become like a wizard. 
Gandalf, for instance, to guide other people, to bring great joy to them, to uh, increase their vision, increase their hearts, ease their suffering. And if we do that, we, we work great good in the world. But we also have the choice of becoming the opposite, which is a sorcerer. And a sorcerer is one who uses images to dominate and control. A necromancer, who is a type of sorcerer, actually deals with the dead. And he brings back to mind for other people the fact that we're all going to die. He brings back to mind this hopelessness and despair. And he makes other people dependent on not the good, but on him. Rather than making people autonomous and free, he makes people into zombies, into living dead to work for him. Or if he's a warlock, he encourages people to violence, stirs them up, raises their passions so that they're ready to act where he wants them to act. And such sorcery, I think, is uh, very, very dangerous. But both wizard action and sorceress action stem from this essential knowledge, this magus, this magi. The knowledge is a knowledge which some people are born with and some can cultivate, but it's a knowledge of the inherent problem between our own image that we have and the reality that that image should correspond to. And the gap between them is where that fraud sense comes from. The gap between what we perceive as being true and what really is true. If we suffer from this sense of fraudulence, imposter syndrome, then we should take note that others have suffered from it before us. And it doesn't stem from our jobs. And it doesn't stem from our environment. Maybe it stems purely from our own hearts, our own minds. And if we take action, we can overcome it or live with it, learn to deal with it, and perhaps use it to help other people to escape from their own sense of being frauds, trapped, uh, enslaved. I encourage you to do so if you have this. I really do. I encourage you to delve into these writing, writers who've talked about this before. And I encourage you to persist in finding out more about this sort of syndrome. And I, and I also encourage you to take heart because you are capable of greatness. You are capable of leading others to a light that they never thought possible. Take charge of your life in this. Change things around. Allow your sense of being an imposter make you rather a humble magi who comes to the feet of the newborn life and leaves his gifts there as an offering. Thank you, friends. Take care and blessings on you.